If you have a Bible, Galatians 3.26, as we continue in our series on the gospel and race. Before we go any further, allow me to pray. Lord, I, um, I, I pray that you would, uh, well, actually, I just want to submit all of my, my thoughts to you and my heart and, my, and my, my mouth, every capacity that I have, I want to put it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I submit our church to you, Lord. I know that um, I know that there's been a lot of excitement like in January when we heard about all the topics that we're going to be going through. And now that we're in them, they're not as exciting because they're really hard, God. And, uh, but I, I, just, I just pray that um, the way that we all react and the way that we all are hearing this are, are different. And I pray that you would help us by your spirit to get down to the truth that you want for our community right now. And how we live into that as sons and daughters of the living God, living in the new family of Jesus. Would you help us, God? Give us your spirit as a comforter. Give us your Holy Spirit as someone, as the one who knows how to confront us well and um, wake us from our, our sleep, as your word says in Ephesians. Um, so I just give this time to you and pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, we are three weeks into a series on the gospel and race, and as advertised, this series is stirring up a lot of stuff in our community and in our community groups. We had anticipated that this would indeed stir up a lot of stuff, and we tried as best as we could to prepare the church to have these conversations with all the teachings we did in the first half of the year. But be that as it may, I still know it's been hitting people differently. For some of you, you have never really thought about race or race in America. Maybe you're an immigrant or, and don't think it has much to do with you. You're not from here. It's an American thing. And maybe because you don't see yourself from here, you don't think this has anything to do with you at all. For others, you don't think race is an issue. And the issue for you is that people always are trying to make it a race issue. And you don't like that. You may, maybe even you hate that. And you think that since you live in San Francisco, race is not like a thing here. You get that progressive pass of living in San Francisco. We're progressives. We don't have to talk about this stuff because we know it. Um, others think that the past is the past. America may have a racist past with slavery and what we've done to Native people, but that is behind us. And you've never personally owned a slave or haven't killed an indigenous person. So why are, you, why are we living so much in the past? Why are we bringing this stuff up from the past? And still others have wrestled with this topic of race like in the here and now. And you've been hurt and, ha and continue to get be hurt by this conversation. And you're either really glad that we're talking about this head on from the pulpit. Or you're not glad because as a person of color, you just don't want to engage in this stuff right now because you're really tired and exhausted because of our world. No matter where you are on the spectrum, and maybe I didn't even name exactly where you're at. Here is why I think it's important for our church to be in this moment right now talking about the gospel and race. Because, as it says on the screen, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is really about being reparented into the new family of God. Now, this is something that I've said to this congregation over and over and over again over the last several years. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus has come to make a new humanity. And that, the context of that is the racial divide or the, or the ethnic divide between Jew and Gentile. Christ came to abolish that divide and make a new humanity, a new family. Now, if that is true, 
then being a disciple of Jesus is learning how to live into this new family. Are you with me? Amen. So we're, we're brought into a new family. And then being a disciple of Jesus is learning, okay, how do I live into this new family? Part of that, part of learning how to live into Jesus' new family, is learning how we treat each other and how we relate by taking what we've learned from our past, our family of origin and our culture, and laying aside the things that don't align with how this new family in Christ functions and relates. You with me? Okay. So here's an example. How did your family of origin process anger? Think about it like this from a few weeks ago. Is anger dangerous and bad and to be avoided at all costs? So you kind of suppress your anger? Do you explode in anger to make a point? Is sarcasm an acceptable way for you to release anger? So you kind of just do these like, hot, like offhand comments. How do you deal with anger? Now, the real question is, as a Christian, how do we do anger in the new family of Jesus? You just don't go like, oh, that's how my dad or my mom did anger. You're like, okay, that's, that's fine. But that's not how we do anger in the family of Jesus. And the, and the discipleship is learning how to do anger now in the new family of Jesus. And that's why we had in Keiichi read the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing during call to worship. That is how we behave in the new family of Jesus. Anger is not okay anymore. Are you, are you still with me? Anger is not okay the way it was before. Are you, okay. Now here's the leap. I'm going to make a leap. I'm going to show you that I'm making this leap. So you're like, how did you get there? Okay, here's the leap. Ready? I, I'm calling you out. I don't want you to miss it. How did your family, your culture, see race, ethnicity, and dominant culture? Just made a leap. It got really quiet. That question, for a lot of people, is hard to face and answer. Now, uh, by the way, can I ask you not to leave during the sermon? Because I know some of you guys are like, I'm gonna, you want to leave. So just stay and just engage. Just, just for, you know, two hours of my sermon, or however long this goes. <laughs> Okay, there's different reasons why this is hard. Maybe because if you go there, if you ask yourself the question, how this one on the screen, if you go there, you may see your parents in a different light. You don't really want to do that. Or you may have to acknowledge some things about your past that you don't know if you're really ready to acknowledge yet or even wrestle with. Or maybe this question requires you to acknowledge things about your present right now and if you do that, you'll start seeing yourself as a bad person. You can't do that. It just rocks your entire identity. Now, I get all of that. That's what, I, all of that is actually part of this process. But according to a lot of the New Testament, this question, no matter how hard it is to face, is a very important question to figure out. So what part of that question above needs to be seen and owned and lamented and repented of, celebrated or redeemed? And I'm not, I'm not just talking about white people here. I'm talking about all of us. If you as a white person feel like really put on blast during the series, it, I'm not talking about uh, just talking to white people. I'm talking about all of us as a multi-ethnic, multicultural family of God. All of us. How are we to see race and ethnicity and dominant culture in the new family of Jesus? All of us. And this is why we're here in this series. I have no political agenda. If by that you think I have some liberal or conservative Democrat or Republican identity politics or anti-American sentiment, I have none of that. As a pastor, and you, you just, you don't have to believe me. You can poke holes in that if you'd like to. But as a pastor, 
I desire for this church to live under the new humanity that Jesus brings into being by his blood on the cross. That's what I deeply desire. And so, when Jesus hung on a cross, a Roman centurion pierced his side with a spear to make sure he was dead. And we're told by St. John, that mystical writer of Jesus' story, that when the spear went into Jesus' side, there was a, quote, sudden blow, a, a sudden flow of water and blood. Medically speaking, it was telling the centurion that Jesus was indeed dead. But spiritual writers have always taken this to mean that at the moment Jesus was dying on the cross, he was in reality giving birth to the church, water and blood. Ash just gave birth to our first baby girl, and I don't want to have to get into any of the details, but there was sudden flow of water and blood. We are, by Jesus's blood, a new family, a new humanity. That's reality. That's true. And What's also true is that we're not fully there in actuality yet. So there's some hard work to do and some hard conversations that we have to have to get there to actually live into Jesus' new family. So let's continue today. And I want to teach a teaching, a sermon on about disrupting racism. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. You're there in your Bibles. It says this. So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God. There's that family of God language that I was pointing to. You are all now children of God, a new family. Through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Amen. Here, Paul is writing to a church that was dealing with problems of ethnicity, class, and the supremacy of a dominant culture. By the way, since the inception of the church, the church has always had problems. If you, ha if you, you don't know that, read the New Testament. That's basically why the letters were written, to churches that had problems. For the Galatian church, the church that Paul is writing to here in, in, in Galatians, for the Galatian church, there were some in the church who believed that for someone to be a follower of Jesus— they had to be culturally Jewish. They were called the Judaizers, trying to make Jews of Gentile Christians. So this is how the logic went. Since Jesus came from, a, from the Jewish faith and tradition, and he was the Jewish Messiah, if you wanted to become a Christian, you had to adopt Judaism. That's what these Judaizers were saying. So they put pressure on the Gentile Christians that were just converted to Christianity to observe the law. Okay, you, you trust in Christ. Okay, now go back and do the rest of the, the, the first book. I mean, they didn't have the second book yet, whatever. You know, do the Old Testament. Do all of this for now. So do the law. We need you to do the law now. We need you to be circumcised. Imagine what that sounded like. You have to eat kosher. You have to observe holy days. They wanted Jews. They wanted the Gentiles. Sorry. They wanted the Gentiles to be assimilated in Jewish culture. And this wasn't just about Gentiles doing Jewish stuff. This was about making Gentiles Jewish. Yes, trust in Jesus, but also become Jewish like us. So even after they trusted in Jesus as their savior, Jewish Christians still had a sense of their own superiority. They still maintained the sense of their own Jewish supremacy. What these Judaizers were saying were, our history and our practices and our traditions are normal 
and they're better and they're superior to the Gentiles. Therefore, adopt them to become accepted into this new community. And Paul is writing to the church dealing with ethnic superiority. Now, these Judaizers, they had a good case, right? They had a good case. Here's what the, here, here their case was this. They were mad at Paul because he was breaking down the line between Jews and Gentiles. And the Judaizers' case was that, and their argument was that that line was actually made by God when God called Abraham. So God put the line there. We didn't. But Paul's argument here and what we just read is that Christ reorders everything. Christ reorders the entire thing. When we were baptized into Christ, our fundamental identity is no longer our ethnicity. This is what Paul is saying. You are no longer Jew or Gentile anymore. Not primarily. You are no longer your class, primarily, slave or free. You are no longer even your gender, primarily, male and female. Paul writes that in Christ there is no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying that our fundamental identity is that we are baptized into Christ. This is why baptism most describes who you and I as Christians are right now. In the first century, all baptisms, all baptisms were done the same. No matter if you're male or female, if you're slave or free, or you're Jew or Gentile, every single person was baptized the exact same way. They all stripped down, some of them naked or down to their, their, their undergarments, they, uh, they got baptized, and as soon as they came up out of the water, they were given ro new robes to put on afterwards. Everyone was baptized the same way. What Paul is saying is that we're all the same in Christ. We're all clothed with Christ. Okay, let's take this in for a second. Paul's saying all the things that have divided us now have to be confronted with the reality that we're, we're in Christ, those, those things are torn down. Now, does that mean... We don't see differences. No, that doesn't mean that. This doesn't mean that we're colorblind or that we don't see poverty or wealth or we don't see and live out what it means to be male and female. It means that those differences no longer divide those in the church. It means that those differences no longer are used to oppress those in the church. It means that we don't prefer one over the other. One ethnicity over the other, one gender over the other, one class over the other. It means that we honor our differences and we allow them to come out. There were, we have evidence of, of uh, slaves in the first century in the church being, being um, leaders in the church and leading their owners in the church. They were, in the church, owners would submit to their slave in the church. The, 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 all the hierarchy gets flipped upside down when it comes to the church. All these things no longer matter. Now, this is how revolutionary the church was and is supposed to be. Do you see how, like, how revolutionary it is? So all these things that divide us must be confronted by the leveling work that is the cross of Christ. Now, this passage is helpful because it serves as a mirror to show the racial and ethnic hostility in Paul's time. And it shows and helps us see the racial and ethnicity, ethnic hostility in our time. And it helps us know how to disrupt that. Now, before we talk about how we disrupt that, I want you to go one more place. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12 in your Bible. To the left a little bit. 1 Corinthians 12. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 is the spiritual gifts passage. You might all know this as the spiritual gifts passage. Paul is explaining 
how we need all the gifts of his church to be functioning in what he calls a body. And he uses this analogy of a body, a physical body. He says that we are the body of Christ. And some people are the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ear, all that sort of stuff. Look at verse 12. Skip down to verse 12. Just as one body, just as a body, sorry, the one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So you, we all, most of us who've been around the church know where Paul is going with his argument. He'll describe human body parts and how every part of the body is needed, but they're all still part of the same body. For example, look at verse 16. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they are all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Okay, so all of us, we, what we kind of know from the context is that the, Paul's argument is that we need all of the gifts functioning in the church. Not everyone could be a preacher. Not everyone could be to, to be a greeter. Not everyone could be, do administration. Not everyone could do hospitality. We all need different parts of the body to function. Not everyone can prophesy. Not everyone can do tongues. We all need different parts. This was the Holy Spirit teaching last year, right? Okay, so we all need different parts. But we skip over verse 13. I know I have. Verse 13 is the lens which Paul wants us to see this entire passage. Let's read 12 and 13 again so you don't miss it. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized, there's that word, there's baptism again, by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we are all given the one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but many. This is right in your Bibles. I hope you have your Bibles open. You're seeing this. This is there. I didn't make this up. I didn't put this on the slide. And you're like, oh, it must be true. Read it in your own Bibles. Paul, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, I want you to read this text through the lens of race and class. This is not just a spiritual gifts passage. What Paul is also saying is that unless the body is multi-ethnic and cuts across classism, then his body isn't as diverse as he, God wants it to be. If we just take this to mean a monocultural place where everyone's doing their spiritual gifts, Paul's like, no, 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 that's not what I had in mind. What God actually has in mind is spiritual gifts and class and race, all different functioning as a body. So when we think of the eye, the nose, and the foot, and the hand, we have to be thinking both the spiritual gifts and the multi-ethnic reality of Christ's body. That's what he's saying. David Anderson, pastor of a multi-ethnic church and author of the book Gracism, he takes racism, adds a capital G, which he calls God, and you get, boom, gracism. Pretty smart, right? <laughs> Catchy. Okay, that's the, that's the book. But here's the quote, Okay. He takes some liberties on this passage, he says, and he, and he, and he wants to highlight the multi-ethnic reality of what Paul is saying here. So he paraphrases this text like this. It's great. I'm going to quote it. He says, now the body is not made up of one culture, but many. If the blacks should say to the whites, because I'm not white, I do not belong to the body, it would not make it true. If the blacks would still be a part of the body, whether they vote for the same candidates or not. If whites should say, because I'm not black, I do not belong to the body, it would not make it true. 
the whites should still be part of the body whether they clap their hands and shout loudly in church or not. It doesn't mean they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. If the whole body was tightly structured, where would the sense of spontaneity be? If the whole body was spontaneous, where would the sense of order be? As it is, there are many parts and many cultures, but one body. The Cuban church cannot say to the Haitian church, I don't need you. The Puerto Rican church cannot say to the Mexican church, I don't need you. The Pakistanis cannot say to the Persians, I don't need you. The Japanese cannot say to the Koreans, I don't need you. The suburban church cannot say to the urban church, I don't need you. The city church cannot say to the country church, I don't need you. Jews cannot say to the Arabs, I don't need you. Palestinians cannot say to the Jews, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are not to be dismissed or discarded as if they don't matter. They are God's special instruments of honor to reveal an aspect of God that would otherwise not be seen or experienced. There really is no part of the Christian body that is to be dismissed as unimportant. They all matter. If Palestinian Christians suffer, we all suffer. If South African Christians are freed from apartheid, we all rejoice with them. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Isn't that beautiful? This is what this text is saying. And here's what I love about America and the opportunity we have as a nation. We are, in America, a very diverse nation. We're not the most diverse. We fall somewhere in the middle of the most diverse nations in the world. However, we are a diverse country. And we have, in America, a real opportunity to live into a multicultural reality of God's new family made up of people from different tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. To be that, to be, to live into God's multi-ethnic, multicultural reality, we have to use these scriptures and their implications as a mirror to help us see the racial and ethnic hostility and supremacy or the, or quote, normalcy in our time and how we have to disrupt them. So how do we, with these scriptures as our guiding light, disrupt racism? So one point, I'm going to give you a few points here. I think four, five, 20, I forget. I think four. We'll see. We'll see what happens. First, number one, you must, if you want to disrupt racism, you must allow yourself to be disrupted by the Holy Spirit. This is where some of you do not want to go. Like, I like my peace. I like my church. I like my community group. I like it. I don't want to be disrupted. If we're really going to disrupt racism in our church, the way it insidiously makes its way into our country, we have to allow ourselves not to be disrupted by politics, not to be disrupted by news cycles, but honestly to be disrupted by the Holy Spirit. If you read the book of Acts, it begins with Jesus saying to the disciples, wait for the Spirit. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And when you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to receive power. And you're going to receive power so you can be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. That's, that's cool. I mean, that's where they were at. That's where they were from. Okay, great. And then he says, and then Samaria. And they'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> Samaria? We don't really, like those people, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't know if we can go there. And then Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit would, would literally, throughout the book of Acts, disrupt the disciples to make sure the gospel went to every people group. The Holy Spirit would take the message of the gospel and empower Jesus, to the, with the empowerment of Jesus' um, 
his, his blood, his gospel, to spread all over the world, even to places that the disciples saw as their enemies. Now, I know there's not many people in our church that would see someone, quote, that's other, different than them as an enemy. Unless we're talking about political lines, by the way. And then they became our enemy. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is calling his disciples to go places that they, they naturally don't want to go and must be disrupted in order to go there. For example, in Acts 10, Peter is disrupted by the Holy Spirit when, when the Holy Spirit sends him to Cornelius, a Gentile. And when Peter gets there by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit puts a vision on, uh, gives a vision to Cornelius and Peter. Cornelius sends some people to, 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 to where Peter was in Joppa and to go get Peter and bring Peter back. Well, right at that time before these guests, these people arrived, the Holy Spirit told Peter, there's some people looking for you. It's going to be kind of weird, but go with it. Just go with it. So they show up like, hey, our, our, um, our master has sent for you. Will you come with me? And Peter's like, yeah, the Holy Spirit said to go with you, so I'll go. He ends up in the house of a Gentile, and they're all around, all these Gentiles around, and the first thing Peter says, without any tact at all, because that's Peter, he's like, I'm not supposed to be here. It's against the law. You guys are Gentiles. I'm a Jew. This is not cool, not kosher at all. This is weird, and this is, I'm breaking every law by being here. I mean, that's not usually how you show up to a dinner party, right? Like, hey, I want you to know. I'm not supposed to be here. So that's how Peter goes. He's just like, I'm not supposed to be here. Then he says, but God showed me not to call anything that he has called clean, unclean. And so he says, what do you guys want? And they start telling him how the Holy Spirit's been moving on their heart. And they start praying and the Holy Spirit falls and they start speaking in tongues. The same thing happens in Pentecost, like all over again. And Peter's like, wait, the Holy Spirit is here. Peter didn't want to go. He wouldn't have gone unless the Spirit told him to. Peter didn't think that the Holy Spirit was for the Gentiles, but it was. And the Holy Spirit had to disrupt Peter for him to go there. In Acts chapter 9, you see something of the reverse happen, where a guy named Ananias is disrupted by the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit tells him to go to a man named Saul. Saul has been persecuting and killing Christians. Saul is literally at this moment blind, but before he was literally blind, he was actually blind and thinking he was doing the will of God, but he wasn't doing the will of God until he was confronted by Jesus. Jesus is like, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the one you're persecuting. I'm Jesus. I'm, I'm the Messiah. And then he blinds Paul. Paul's blind, but Paul's blind because he's always been blind. He's, he can't see. And the Holy Spirit tells Ananias, okay, there's a, there's a blind guy. He can't see. He thinks he's doing my will, but he's not doing my will. He thinks he's doing right, but he's not doing right. He thinks he can see, but he can't see. I need you to go help him see. And Ananias says, do you know what you're asking? He kills Christians. He'll put me in prison. I'm afraid. I'm not going to do that. I don't, I'm not going to waste my energy on this guy that, who, who's, who's like trying to kill me. And God says to go. I want you to go. And so Ananias is used to go to Peter and to help him see, to remove the scales from his eyes. See, it might be like with Peter. He sees the world one way and God confronts him and says to sit in the home of the other and to watch how I'm already at work there. Or it might be like with Ananias, who sees people like, like Paul as a part of the problem. Oh, by the way, Saul, his name would later become Paul if you didn't know the story. There might be some Ananiases in here that God is telling you to go help other people in our church who think they see but don't see to help them see. 
And you're like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. No, that's, that's a horrible idea. And God's like, no, I'm, I'm calling you to do that with gentleness, with kindness, with love, with perseverance to go help them see. We have to be open for the Holy Spirit to disrupt our lives if we honestly, in the church, want to disrupt racism. Point one. Point two. Know and understand what racism is and where it hides. So, it's hard to disrupt something when you don't know what it is. Or when we, when we know what it is, but it's so insidious that it hides in plain sight. Now, for this point, I will warn you that there might be some trigger things happening. Just stick with me on this point. I will talk about sociology, which I do regularly, but I never hear about anything about that until I talk about race. And then everybody's like, why bring that up? Okay, so I'll do a little sociology, but I'll land on why it's important for this church to talk about this. So hang with me. Before we talk about racism, let's just break down, before we get there, first, what a stereotype is, what prejudice is, and what discrimination is. So a stereotype is a belief that associates a group of people with certain traits. These are thoughts that we can have towards other people that are not necessarily based on race at all. For example, a stereotype is like all women are nurturing or all progressive people are woke. Like they could be positive or negative, right? That is a stereotype, right? These are beliefs that can be both positive and negative, right? Okay, so that's a stereotype. A prejudice, prejudice is a negative feeling toward persons based on their membership in certain groups. This is a feeling. This is felt negatively and even experienced negatively. For example, a prejudice is like black men are dangerous or Latina women are rational. Like that's a prejudice. That's a negative feeling towards a group of people based on, based on a membership of, of certain group, black men, Latina women, that sort of thing. Discrimination is behavior directed against persons because of membership toward that group. This is the behavior. So the, so the first one was a thought. All women are, are nurturing. The prejudice is a feeling, a gut feeling of like, oh, black, black men are dangerous. So when you see like, oh, or Latino women are rational. You start talking with them, they just get crazy. That's a prejudice. That's a, that's a feeling that you have in your gut. But a discrimination is the behavior, what you do with these things. So, for example, Brian Loritz, uh, who was here last Sunday, shared with our staff just recently, he said, this stuff still shows up. Like he was, I was at the store just, uh, he said, two weeks ago, and he was walking past a, a, a lady who, as soon as she saw him, like visibly clutched her purse tighter and walked right past him, like physically clutched her purse. That's discrimination. Not dating someone who is white because they're not Chinese or vice versa. That's discrimination. Now, Anyone can have these. It doesn't matter who you are. Anyone can have stereotypes, prejudice, and discrimination. Racism is another thing entirely. Racism is when people in power are prejudiced or discriminate based on race or ethnicity. Think of racism as prejudice or discrimination plus power. Now, this is a hard one. For some of you right now, even listen to me, you're getting a little agitated. You want to take the mic right now. You're like, can I have the mic now? It's my turn. <laughs> this is hard because here's why it's hard. There's different schools of thought on this. Some will say that anyone can be a racist. doesn't matter your ethnicity or your race. Anyone can be a racist, no matter, no matter what. But the, oh, and, and there, there might even people here that, that believe that. Now, the overwhelming majority 
of sociologists and thinkers on this will say that only the dominant culture can be racist. That's what the overwhelming... Now, I know there's different schools of thought. For example, the book I just quoted, he, him as an African-American pastor of multi-ethnic church thinks that anyone could be a racist, no matter what. But the overwhelming majority of sociologists and thinkers think that only a dominant culture can be, quote, racist. Example, let me give you an example. Ash and I went to a school where she was, as a white girl, a, minor, a minority. Our high school was majority black and Hispanic. And she was bullied a lot in junior high and high school for being white. What happened to her was racial prejudice. And it was horrible, horrible experience for her in junior high and high school. Now, why are the semantics important here? She was bullied that's the point. You're like, why are, you, why are you using semantics, like racial prejudice versus being racist or whatever, or, or she, people are racist against her? The point is she was bullied. And yes, that is, that is the point. She was bullied. That's important. And that's horrible. And she grew up as a part of dominant culture still. Even though she grew up relatively poor, most of her teachers and her principals, and her coaches, and the police that pulled her over time and time again when she was speeding, let her off over and over again, were white. <laughs> Honestly, over and over again, were white. <laughs> Ongoing conversation, just saying. Most of the people that she, that, that she interacted with in places of leadership were white. She had a hard experience for sure, and I will not take anything away from that. And she grew up in a world where she was a part of dominant culture, and that affected things for her in her future. Now, I share this story to say that what Ash experienced growing up was not reverse racism or racism, but racial prejudice and bullying. Racism, by and large, is prejudice, plus, prejudice or discrimination plus power, which allows there to be oppression. Now, hang with me. I know we already had like eight people leave when I just started saying this stuff. So if you can keep hanging with me, great. I'll land the plane on the point very soon. Just don't write me off entirely yet. Hear the whole thing. As we talked about two weeks ago, race and racism is a social construct created in America to be anti-blackness or anti-brown nativeness. Or said another way, racism manifests itself in this country as white dominant culture, seeing white as normal and everything else as, quote, cultured. So in that, there's like above the waterline racism, if you're thinking about an iceberg, what's seen above the waterline, there is above the line racism and below the line. Above the line, above the, above the iceberg, where it's seen, visible racism, is what we think of as like the KKK, swastikas, the N-word, lynching. About 10% of racism lives there. We can call that overt racism. But below the waterline, if you're using an iceberg image, where it's all below the surface, this is where most of where racism shows up in our country and, and forms of redlining, housing discrimination, implicit bias, presumption of guilt, mass incarceration, hiring discrimination based on name, that sort of stuff. Now, I know when I say that, some of you, possibly many of you will think I just crossed a line into being political. And there are probably five reasons that, you, that come to your mind right now that allow yourself to write me off. But before you write me off completely, let me try to make clear what I'm saying. Above the, above the line racism manifests itself as white is superior. Below the line racism manifests itself as white is normal. 
Normal culture is white culture. Now, let me just say this. When white dominant culture is seen as normal culture, even in the United States where there is a majority white in the church, this is wrong. It's a form of racism and it needs to be disrupted. I remember Tim Keller sharing a story once that woke him up to his own whiteness when he recalled an African-American pastor telling him once, he said, Tim, you know the problem with white people? And Tim was like, oh, this is going to get interesting. (laughs) And this African-American pastor said to Tim, the problem with white people is they don't think they have a culture. Everyone else has a culture, but the way white people do things is just the way they're done. So white's normal. Everything else is cultured. Now, I'm not calling white people bad. Please don't hear that. I'm not calling them racist. If, that by, if that by that you hear that you're immoral or evil or for being white, that's, that's so wrong. That is not what's happening here. What I'm trying to say is that the system that keeps white culture normal in the church is wrong and needs to be seen, called out, and the best we can repented of because we're all needed in God's family especially in a multicultural context. Sung Chan Ra says this in his book, Next Evangelism. He says, central to our understanding of the sin of racism is our understanding of the image of God and how humanity attempts to usurp God's creation order. Sin results when human beings attempt to take God's place in creation. In other words, We make ourselves the standard of reference in the determination of our values and norms. Racism elevates one race as the standard to which other races should seek to attain and makes the one race the ultimate standard of reference. In the church, in the body of Christ, this is wrong. No matter if you are Gentile in the first century and you're at the church in Galatia and you wanted to make a Jewish superior church, Paul says, no, no, no. A class superior church, no, no, no. A gender superior church, no, no, no. In Christ, there is no longer longer Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male and female. Now, the distinguishing characteristics of humanity is that we are created in the image of God and his likeness. Now, so example is, um, this shows up a lot when I do weddings. I don't do that many weddings anymore. But I used to do a ton when the church first started. And I would always encourage whoever I was marrying to make their wedding as culturally and ethnically honest as possible. So if I was to do a, a, like a wedding like a, a, for a Chinese couple, I would say, do the full-on tea ceremony and the red envelopes with the blessing, all of it. Even if some of your guests are white, like, that takes a long time. It doesn't matter. Do it. For, in in Keiichi's wedding, she, she's Nigerian. So, you know, culturally, the bride shows up in a Nigerian wedding late. Late in normal white culture is like 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. She was an hour and a half late. People were freaking out, asking each other if they had food in their purse, like leftover food, who had water, could someone go grab some snacks? I mean, you know who wasn't freaking out? Her Nigerian family. I remember being in the back with Brian, and I'm like, he's like, 
are you worried? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Should I be worried? Like, did you think she ran away? Do you think, I mean, and he was just cool. No, no, she'll be here. She'll be here. I'm like, do you want me to, you want me to call her? Yeah, yeah, maybe you should call her. A hundred times I called her, didn't answer a single time. She's like, oh, she'll answer when I call. No, no, no. Now, why? Why? Culturally. Because she's the queen and she'll show up when she wants to show up. A Nigerian wedding, right? That's how, that's how it works there. Now, we have to do some real, real work around, uh, around our church community in this area. I will admit that. I'll be the first to admit that. We see ways that our CGs are neighborhood-based, which offers wonderful opportunity for community, but also we know that our, our city is, is, is somewhat segregated by affluence. And we need to address that. We see ways that our music is monocultural, and we've been talking about this for a couple of years, and we want to reflect the multiculturality of our church, and we are doing serious work towards that. We want this to be a reality. We want to say we want our church to reflect a multicultural reality and be a, a, a picture of that. That doesn't mean white is bad. Please don't hear that. And white culture is bad. Please don't hear that. What we're trying to say is Christ is superior, so allow all of the flavors in his church to come out. That's what we're trying to do. Now, to do that, we have to name some things that are kind of like really hard to face. Even for me personally, hard to face, but we have to. Third, third thing we have to do. I have 50 seconds left, so I, I'll go a little long. Um, no, I just have a couple left. Third, build up your racial stamina. Build up your racial stamina. I won't spend that much time here, but I want to call this out and address this. There are many in here that are just not used to having these conversations. And when you do have them, you don't feel like they're going anywhere and you feel attacked or the church is going in a direction you don't want to go. Now, this could be an opportunity for you to build your racial stamina and to keep pressing into learning and listening and conversing. I found that the way people try to avoid this conversation is through name calling or blaming politics. We can't do that. We just have to stay in this conversation. I wish I had more time, but I think the next point's more important. So number four, we must suspend individualism. The unholy trinity of Western philosophy is me, myself, and I, though that was a wonderful De La Soul song. That is not <laughs> biblical at all, okay? Now, most of evangelical theology has become an exclusively individual-driven theology instead of a community-driven theology. In an individual-driven theology, individual sin takes center stage. Individual sin leads to a sense of personal guilt. I, the individual, did something personally wrong, and I feel guilty about my actions. Therefore, I can personally confess my sins and be absolved of my individual sinfulness and my personal feelings of guilt. Game over. I'm done. And because the individual is only responsible for personal guilt, there is no sense of shame or corporate actions that are also expressions of human sinfulness. Though that is most of the Bible is written to, the, to a community that's dealing with communal sin. Now, here's the point. Our reduction of sin to personal issues means that we are unwilling to deal with social structural evils. And thus, reduction prevents us from understanding the full expression of human sinfulness and fallenness. So let me try to show you this by flipping it around, because it might be getting hot over this. So let's just flip it around and show you what it looks like positively, right? Okay, a lot of my Bay Area friends, my, a lot of my Bay Area Asian friends, during the NBA finals, 
started to root for the Raptors. And I was like, what? I seen on Instagram. I'm like, what are you doing? You're like SF born and raised. Like Warriors are your team. Why are you rooting for the Raptors? Why? Jeremy Lin, right? Jeremy Lin being Asian was a minority in basketball and Asian minorities in America rooted for him and his team over their own local teams. Why? Corporate connection. That's how good corporate connection flows down. He wins, we win. I see this in Hawaii every single time I go to Hawaii and I watch the news in Hawaii. Whenever you watch the news, local news in Hawaii, they always have a section in their local news on how Hawaiians are doing on the mainland. <laughs> you ever seen this? Like who got drafted in the NFL? He was from, you know, Hawaii, whatever state, or he's from this island, or who's made it to the NBA, or who made it to the, the Major League Baseball, or what movie The Rock is coming out with next, or something like that. Every single time, and I love it. I must watch this going, what, what is it? I laugh, and I say, this is, they're saying, this is us out there doing good. Look at us out there doing good on the mainland. Look at us just crushing it on the mainland. Yeah, that's us. <laughs> Corporate connection. A lot of us in... And dominant culture don't get this because we just see ourselves as individuals. We don't even see, uh, there are people in here that don't even see themselves as white. They see themselves as, you know, Stan or whatever, right? They, like, I'm just me. I'm just myself. I don't see myself as like a part of this thing because you're like dominant culture. Okay, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, who is, who there is no recorded sin of in, 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 the, in Daniel's entire uh, uh, his tire like profile, which is pretty rare in the Bible. In Daniel 9, Daniel confesses the sins and repents of for what he says it's, is his responsibility to repent for the sins of his ancestors that they did, but that he had no part of and was actually suffering under the consequences for. He said, we have sinned. He counts himself as part of that group. There's no sin is recorded of Daniel at all. He says in Daniel 9, read it for yourself, we have sinned against you, we have not obeyed, we have rebelled, we, 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 and we repent from what we have done. See, I've heard a lot in this conversation over the past three weeks in this community, I've never owned slaves, I've never killed a native person who was on this land before us, not me, I haven't done this, don't put 400 years of slavery at my feet. What we have to do as an entire church is all being it together. John Dawson, who writes a book on intercession for America, like Healing America's Wounds, it's called. He says this, if we have broken our covenants with God and violated our relationships with one another, the path to reconciliation must begin with an act of confession. The greatest wounds in human history, the greatest injustices have not happened through the acts of some individual perpetrator, rather through the institutions, systems, philosophies, cultures, religions, and governments of mankind. Because of this, we as individuals are tempted to absolve ourselves from all individual responsibility. Unless somebody identifies themselves with corporate entities, such as the nation of our citizenship or the subculture of our ancestors, the act of honest confession will never take place. This leaves us in a world of injury and offense in which no corporate sin is ever acknowledged. Reconciliation never begins and old hatreds deepen. And so what we must do is we have to just own it collectively. We don't just say, we can say like Daniel, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have done this. We have, we have twisted your Imago Dei. We have, we have been complicit as a church into this, in this system. And we say no more. Like we can do that. 
Five, and the last one is lament. So what do we do with all our emotions of anger and our processing and our fears and our sadness? 100 out of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament, psalms of grief, of pouring out heart to God. Maybe you're tired of all this education, all this information, and you just want something to do. You're like, just Dave, just tell me what to do so we can move past this into action. I don't like hearing about this. I've already know this, we, I, we've sinned. Let's just do something about it. Action is required, and I think that's a really good instinct. But Christian action, biblical action, takes the form of lament first. It's an engagement that acknowledges the suffering first, the suffering of the oppressed, those that have suffered under a system that no matter how they felt or how much they wanted to move towards action, they couldn't. Sitting with them and that suffering first is a part of lament. Yesterday, I started reading an activism book. I didn't really know, actually know his activism book until I started reading it. It's by a local writer and artist named Jenny O'Dell. She's a Stanford prof. And the book is called How to Do Nothing. Someone recommended it to me from the church, and it's incredible. I read the intro yesterday, just getting ready, on my Sabbath, getting ready for a vacation next week. And her argument is that before we can do anything useful, we must stop and first learn to do nothing to disentangle ourselves from our culture and society's value system and become what she called a resistance in place. She writes that to resist in place is to make oneself into a shape that cannot easily be appropriated by our current value system. This is so prophetic. I'm reading this going, oh my gosh, this is so prophetic. To resist in place in this context, what it looks like with racism in God's church, looks like not becoming the shape of our current conversations, whether that is anger or dismissal or name-calling or shaming. Resist, resisting in place means that we stay in this place, no matter how uncomfortable, and lament and repent together, corporately, and to do that biblically, and to do that with neither the optimism of the American dream nor the pessimism of America's sins. Leslie Newbegin, the missiologist, once asked about the future, if he's optimistic or pessimistic. He says, I am neither an optimist nor pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. I don't look to the future and like, oh my gosh, it's so bleak. We'll never, or look to the future like, oh my gosh, it's all progress. Neither of those. I'm firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and his message. He is risen from the dead. He, he right sets my expectations. He right sets how I can sit and lament. He right sets how I can deal with my sin and corporate sin. He right corrects everything. And as a church, that we have to sit there. And we're going to do that. We're going to do this through something that we traditionally as a church do, prayers of the people. And we usually do it begin the beginning, first set of worship. But we're going to do it now, corporately together. And this is going to be, this is, for some of us, it will give us prayers to pray, words to pray that we don't have prayers for. For others, it's going to disrupt us in ways. But we're just going to sit before God and go, God, hear our prayer as a corporate community. So would you stand with me as we close in prayer?